Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and be opening it with me, please, to the book of Matthew. We'll come to a passage there, chapter 13, later in the message, but uh, you can go ahead and be opening your Bible. Continuing this uh, series of messages on the Protestant Reformation, as most of you know, this month is uh, recognized as the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that began with Martin Luther in Germany in 1517. And we're taking these weeks to look at some of the issues that existed then and how do they speak to us today because the issues still exist. Maybe they've changed their shape a little bit, but the same issues are then are, are issues now. This morning I want us to talk about corruption. And the, the contrast to that is character. So we're going to talk about corruption and character, what it was, what, what the issue was 500 years ago and what the issue still is today. I mean, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to look very hard to see that there's a lot of bad in our world, to see that uh, there's a lot of evil in the world, to see corruption. And, 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 and I'm talking just about terrorism and things like that. We, we see it just across the board here in our own country. People in all walks of life, if you pay attention to the news, you've, you've heard the name. You may not have known anything about him before, but the name Harvey uh, Weinstein. Been in the news a lot in recent weeks. Very powerful person in Hollywood. He and his uh, brother years ago co-founded the independent uh, company Miramax that produced a lot of top movies over the years. And he's a producer and, and an executive in Hollywood and as such, he's, listen, he, he, he won one Academy Award as a producer, and he won seven Tony Awards. So you're talking about a successful man, a wealthy man, and one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. And yet today, more than 60 women have accused him of sexual harassment, sexual assault of some form or another. And some pretty big stars, uh, Kate Beckinsale, Ashley Judd, Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie, Another six women have actually accused him of rape. And I won't go into the details of how he did it. If you kept up with the news, you know what he's been doing. But police, both in Britain and America, are investigating him right now. The company he started fired him. He lost his job. His wife announced she's divorced him. Politicians and movie industry insiders are distancing themselves from him after for years having ignored at best and at worst, been complicit in covering up all that he had done. I don't know about you, but I enjoy watching the, the Olympics every time it comes on. And, uh, you know, we, we love the ladies, the gym, gymnasts for America who've won gold the last two Olympics. And, um, but that's been in the news lately too. Because Larry Nasser, the team physician for the past 30 years, going back, starting in 2015 and back for 30 years, he's in jail today. The team physician to the, to, to, to the U.S. Olympics, to the women teams, he's in jail for child pornography. He pleaded guilty. They, the FBI found more than 37,000 images in his home. They have him on video abusing a child in a swimming pool. He, he was employed at the University of Michigan State, and women there, athletes there, and athletes with the women's gymnastic teams, 125 of them currently have accused him of some form of sexual abuse over the years. He's facing charges for that now. 
In fact, the most prominent U.S. gymnast, Michaela Maroney, who won medal, medals in the London Olympics in 2012, she's come out recently saying that he abused her the whole time she was on the U.S. Olympic team as a gymnast. Corruption, evil. Last Sunday, last Sunday evening in Orlando, Florida, a man was uh, unwisely walking in, in a busy highway and was struck by a car and killed. The driver did the right thing, stopped, called 911. When the, when, it, when, when the driver's car hit this man, obviously he, his body went flying in the highway, but some of his possessions, they're not sure if it was a, a cell phone or his wallet or whatever, went flying through the air and landed on the sidewalk. As I said, the driver called 911. Some man driving another car stopped got out, went over to the sidewalk, picked up whatever those personal possessions were, got back in his car and drove off. So you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be powerful to be evil, right? To do something wrong. New story in Pittsburgh. parent angry at a teacher, school teacher, attacked her and threw a brick at her and knocked a tooth out. I mean, we could spend hour after hour after hour telling story of the bad things people do, right? And sometimes they have a history of it. Sometimes it's just in that moment they lose control and they make a really bad decision. And, and, and here's the thing. Every time someone does something bad, someone else hurts. Sometimes a lot of people hurt. People do bad things, dishonest things, unethical things, corrupt things. Rich people do it. Powerful people do it. Poor people do it. Weak people do it. Everyday people do it. And it always hurts other people. We find bad behavior in every institution on the planet. There's corruption and bad decisions and bad things done in, in, in politics and government. People do bad things in business. People do bad things in the banking industry. People do bad things in the sports industry. People do bad things in universities and Local schools, people do bad things in their own homes, in their own marriages, and to their own kids. People do bad things to friends. People do bad things in Sunday school classes and in churches. Is that not true? See, it's, it's not limited to any one institution or any one segment of society or any one group of people. It's a human problem. It's a human problem. It's not an institutional problem. It's not a race problem. It's not an education problem. It's a human problem. Because every human being on this planet is a sinner, incapable of evil, capable of moments of really bad choices. 
a human problem. And today I want to talk about that because even though it exists in the church, we're supposed to be different. Even though we know that Christians and followers of Jesus sometimes do bad things, we're supposed to be different. Remember what the Bible says, and, and, and it's a takeoff on what the choir was just singing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at this on your, on your screen. As obedient children, just as children are supposed to obey, obey their parents, we're supposed to obey God, our Heavenly Father. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in, in your ignorance. In other words, don't live like you did before you followed Jesus. Now, remember, he's talking to the early believers. Most of them were saved as adults. Here's the thing. Most of us are saved as children. Do you know that over 80% of people who become Christians become Christians while they're children? Which speaks to the, 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 the value, the priority we're supposed to place on children's ministry, which speaks to why those of us who are older should be investing in kids and not just our own kids because that's when most people are going to come to faith in Christ. And so a lot of you are thinking, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have much to look back on because I was saved when I was 10. Well, if I could put that in a modern context, it would be this. As a follower of Christ, as obedient children of God, don't be conformed to the lust that most people in this world live by. Be different. Be different. He says in verse 15, but like the Holy One, who's that? Huh? The Father, Jesus, just like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. So does God have an expectation for us? Does God have a standard for us? And notice he says, in what? In all your, in some of it? In some of it? In some of it? In what church? In all. Because it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, so God, God has a standard. We're to be different. We're to be more like him than we are the world. But that doesn't always happen, does it? It's, it's not, <laughs> let's just be honest, it doesn't always happen. We're, we're, we're sinners and we come shy of that. Some come shy of it more than others. And some come shy of it in some really horrific, painful ways. The Catholic Church for the last many years has been dealing with the sexual abuse scandal among its priests. And if the behavior wasn't bad enough, the just the, the, the ignoring it and at times blatant cover-ups made it worse on so many levels. Those of you who are a little older think back to some years ago with all the scandals of the so-called televangelists. Y'all remember the stories of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and on and on I could go? By the way, there's some new ones out there too. But let's bring it a little closer to home. The truth is every person in this room can stand up and talk about people we've known who were leaders in ministry, whether they were preachers, Sunday school teachers, deacons, whatever, who suddenly did something horrific and brought shame on themselves and on the kingdom of God. True? It was corruption, especially among the church and the clergy, that really bothered Martin Luther 500 years ago that was part of what motivated him to initiate this movement that we today recognize as the Protestant Reformation. 
Scholars and historians of all persuasion, including Catholic scholars, acknowledge that the church of the medieval years was corrupt and needed reforming. See, I don't think that's when it started. You, 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 you trace church history. You, you go to the book of Acts and, and you see God's movement among his people as Christianity as the gospel spread throughout Europe and North Africa and other parts of the world. And there were times, there were seasons of persecution in this area and that area. And then when the Roman emperor Constantine in the 400s stopped the persecution of the church and gave Christianity favored status, and there's a lot of debate why he did it, whether it was for personal reasons that he really became a believer, he said he did, but who knows, or it was political reasons to find something that would unite his kingdom that was starting to come apart. Suddenly Christianity moved from being an abused religion where you were persecuted to being the favored religion and you wanted to be part of it because it's like years ago in the South, if you wanted to get ahead in business, you joined the First Baptist Church or the First Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church because that's where you made your business connections. Now, am I lying? Well, that's what it was in the Roman Empire. And so it led to more and more people in the church who weren't genuine believers. There are stories in some places of people joining at the threat of the sword. Well, that's real genuine, isn't it? And that led to the weakening of the church. It led to an increasing corruption of the church in year after year, decade after decade, century after century. It took a toll. And by the time of Martin Luther, the church was the most powerful institution in Europe. Hey, sweetie. I'm sorry. She was sleeping so beautifully until I, until I woke, woke them up. Let me give you an example of that. Pope Leo was not one of the more respected popes in, in history. He bankrupted the Vatican pretty much. And because of that, construction on St. Peter's Basilica came to a halt. Needed money to finish it. There was a, there was a man in Germany named Albert, Albert of Brandenburg, who wanted to be an archbishop. He'd already purchased a bishop, two bishop positions. He wanted to be archbishop. So he and Pope Leo negotiated. Now, this is just to give you a picture of the church in the Middle Ages. They went into a negotiation, and, they, and, and it, was, it was a financial negotiation. We have, we have some documentation of this negotiation. And they settled on, amount, on an amount that today would be worth millions of dollars. The problem was Albert couldn't, he didn't have that money on his own, so he worked out a deal with the banks in Germany to borrow it. He would then give it to the Vatican, and he would become archbishop. But the banks needed assurance he could pay it back. And so it was a three-way negotiation between the banks in Germany, Albert of Brandenburg, and the Pope, Pope Leo in the Vatican. And, and what Leo agreed to was that Albert would be able to sell these indulgences we've been talking about the last two weeks in Germany, these special indulgences that if you gave any sum of money, you got whatever relative you wanted to out of purgatory and out of hell. 
got them into heaven. And all the funds that would be raised through the selling of those indulgences that could only be sold if the Pope authorized it, that money would go to the banks until they were paid in full, and then after that, whatever he sold, the Vatican got. So the Vatican got all their money up front and then an ongoing stream of income so that this one man who was corrupt could be an archbishop. He's the one that, working with Pope Leo, employed this this Johann Tetzel to raise money in Germany, and it was the abuse of all this and the corruption of it that infuriated Martin Luther. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago one of Tetzel's little rhymes, his little jingles. Another one he said, Place your penny on the drum and the pearly gates open and in strolls mom. Well, we have preachers on TV today. We have preachers in churches today. And you do this and God's going to give you that job. You give this and God's going to give you that raise. You, you, you give your money to this and God's going to give you ten times back more money than you gave. You, you hear it all the time, don't you? What's the difference? Both are corrupt. Does God bless faithful givers? Yes, but sometimes that blessing is a relationship blessing. Sometimes it's a spiritual blessing. It can be a job. It can be financial. But God never promises if you give money, he's going to make you rich. Don't let anybody tell you that nonsense. Sometimes God's plan is for us to live without The Bible has standards. Scripture has standards for clergy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, speaking about somebody who wants to be a minister. He must have a good what? With whom? With whom, church? Who's outside the church? Those who aren't believers. It's not just your reputation inside the church, but your reputation outside the church matters. So they will not fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. It happens, but God says we're going to have standards. But what about what about those of you sitting out there in the chairs? Colossians four verses five and six. Conduct yourselves, he says, with wisdom toward whom? Whom church? Who's that? Those who aren't believers. Those who aren't part of the church. Let your speech be seasoned, always be with what? With, with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Salt makes things taste better. See, see God, we're, we're sinners. and Listen, the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We sin and we're all, we're all as believers going to do wrong at times. We're going to sin at times. But yet scripture also says here's the standard. Go for it. Be different. Be different. Because we're not, we're, we're not 
people always hurt. So why, why does this happen? Why, why do people, and listen, listen, it's not just people who are intentionally manipulative, people who are intentionally hypocritical. Sometimes really genuine good people make a bad decision in a moment. Is that not true? Why does this stuff happen, okay? Why does it happen? Why is there corruption? Why, why does this stuff happen? Let me give you two reasons. I can give you a lot, but let me give you two. One is we're weak. The flesh is weak. We, we, we may be saved and have a new nature, a new heart, but we still live in this fleshly, sinful body, and it's weak. Jesus is the one who said, keep watching and praying. In other words, keep your eyes open for what's going on around you and, and looking inside yourself, examining yourself. Pay attention and pray, pray, pray that you not enter what? Temptation. Why? Because the Spirit, then, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's your Spirit inside of you is willing, but your flesh is what? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm reminded I'm weak every time I open a bag of potato chips. You may have a different weakness, but you have weaknesses. That's one reason it happens. Don't, don't cop out. Don't use that as an excuse, but it is one of the reasons it happens. That's why we have to stay on our guard. But I want to spend a few moments talking to you about another reason that most of us don't, don't think enough about, and it's this. It's that Satan is really busy in this world. Do you know that Satan wants to put people in this church who will bring disgrace on this church? That, that everywhere God has a work going on, Satan wants to put people, infiltrate people in there to mess it up. And sometimes they become preachers. Matthew 13, you got your Bible open? Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable starting in verse 24. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men, his slaves, his servants were sleeping, <clears throat> his enemy, I guess next door farmer who didn't like him, sowed tares among the wheat. Now, tares are weeds, but here's the thing. Tares, tares as they were growing looked just like wheat, and you couldn't tell tear, a tear from wheat until, until the harvest time. They looked just alike. You see where Jesus is going with this? Huh? And then they went away after sowing the tare. Verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, when it was harvest time, then the tares became evident also because they don't, they don't look the same once the harvest comes in, once it's fully ripe, ready to be harvested. Verse 27, so the slaves, the servants of the landowner, came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28, the, the landowner said to his servants, he said, An enemy has done this. And the slaves, his servants, said to him, Do you want us to then, then go and, and gather them up, pull up the tares and stuff? Verse 29 said, No, don't do that. He said, For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Because the roots have grown in together. You, you do know that we develop relationships and friendships and affinities for people. And even when they do something wrong, sometimes we can't see past the affinity to want to deal with the evil without it on some level hurting us. 
because those roots grow deep. He said, allow them both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather up the tares first, bind them in bundles and burn them. And then gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if you drop down a few verses to verse 36, after the crowds went away, Jesus explained in deeper in a deeper way that the meaning of that parable to his disciples in verse 36. And so in verse 37, Jesus said this, <clears throat> the one who sows the, the good seed is the son of man. He says, that's me, Jesus, okay? I'm sowing good seed. The field is the world. So Jesus is sowing the seed of the gospel, the seed of truth, the seed of salvation in this world. The, the world is the garden. It's the field. The good seed that's the sons of the kingdom. That's true believers. The tares, sons of the evil one. Verse 39, and the enemy who sold them, the, the evil one who, who planted the, the tares, his children, is the devil. So he's saying the devil places his people <clears throat> in the field <clears throat> where God is growing his people. Do you get the picture? Huh? The harvest is the end of the age. It's the second coming. The reapers are the angels. And just like in, in the, the tares are gathered up in verse 40 and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Son of man will send forth his angels. They'll gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Now, does that sound like some of the people we've been talking about this morning? And you, you can read the rest of it, but their future is not a happy one. Now, those of us who are genuine followers of Christ can sin. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, and he sinned horribly at one point in his life, didn't he? So good people, because of the weakness of the flesh, can fall. Genuine people can fall. That's the reason the Bible says if you think you stand, hey, take heed, watch, look, because the very moment you think you stand and you don't need to pay attention anymore and you don't need to be on your guard anymore, the very moment you become arrogant, the very moment you think you're something compared to everybody else is the very moment you become weak. So our flesh is weak and we can fall. But you also have to understand is that we have an enemy, and not only is he trying to bring us down, he's trying to discourage us, not only by tempting us, but by putting, putting people in our path who will discourage us by how they live. Satan can bring people to this church on purpose. Satan can put a co-worker right beside you, husband, just to tempt you. Wife, he can put somebody right beside you who will listen to all your complaining about your marriage just to compromise you. And corruption always hurts. Right? Huh? So what, what, do we, what do we do? How do we protect ourselves? Well, let me, <clears throat> let me wrap this up by giving you just a few practical pointers to protect yourself, okay? Number one, 
build into your life what I call guardrails. You know those guardrails on the side of the highway to keep you from running off the highway? You need some guardrails in your life. If you know there's an area in your life where you tend to be weak and, and are more likely to be tempted, put some guardrails there to protect you in that area. A few months ago, there was some controversy when Vice President Pence, actually he, he had talked about it a long time before that, but his wife mentioned it, that he had this policy, because he's, he's, he's an evangelical believer, he's a devout Christian, he has this policy that he will not go to dinner with a woman who's not his wife alone, just the two of them. There always have to be other people. That's his policy. He, he was criticized without mercy by liberals and feminists and others. But he, what he's trying to do is to be godly. And he, that's a guardrail. He's smart. The people who criticize him are not. It's a guardrail. I can't tell you what the guardrails need to be for your life. And, and listen, one of the problems is that sometimes we develop guardrails for ourselves and then we become like Pharisees and think my guardrail has to be your guardrail even though you have different issues than me. And, and we become judgmental. Don't, don't judge people about guardrails, but brothers and sisters, you better come up with some guardrails to protect you and keep you on the path to righteousness. What are they for your life? You need to spend some time thinking about that and identifying Guardrails. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. There's a reason there are windows in the doors of every pastor's office in our administration building. That's on purpose. I insisted on that. A guardrail. What's the guardrails in your life as a Christian, as a believer? Secondly, accountability, some system of checks and balances. particularly in areas where you might be tempted. I mean, you know, you talk about churches, a lot of times disgrace in churches is because of sex and money, right? Sometimes I know it can be a little frustrating, but we have, we have very strict financial policies here. There's a reason for that. It's to protect this church. It's to protect me. It's to protect you, us, and the reputation of this church and this community. Our pastors can't sign a check. There's on and on and on. There's so many regulations here. It's to protect. It's accountability. And you need those in your personal life. You've got to figure out what those are in your personal life. Number three, surround yourself with people of good character. People who will rub off on you in a positive way. Do not be deceived, the Bible says. Bad company corrects, corrupts good morals. I mean, how many of you were worried about that when you were raising your kids? Huh? Right? How many of you grandparents care about that when it comes to your grandkids? Who are they hanging out with all the time? Well, listen, that's not just about children. It's also about adults. I'm not saying you can't be framed with someone who's not a believer, but I'm saying you better watch who you surround yourself with and how much you hang out with certain people. You better pay attention to that because we rub off on one another. Number four, prayer. 
Jesus in the verse we looked at earlier this morning said, watch and pray so that you don't enter temptation. You know, spirit's willing, flesh is weak, pray. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 18. The writer said, pray for us. For we're sure we have a good conscience. We, we, you know, we, we're not aware of anything we've done wrong. Desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things so that we continue to do what's good and, and, and behave in an honorable way. We're not perfect, but we want to bring honor to Christ and to his kingdom and to the gospel. Pray for us. And you've heard me say this recent recent years, and I'm going to keep beating it like a dead horse, but you better hear this, brothers and sisters. We need to pray for each other's spiritual well-being as much as we do for people's physical well-being. And I'm afraid we pray more about sickness than we do salvation and spiritual health. Now, I'm not saying don't pray, stop praying for people who are sick. We need to do that. But brothers and sisters, there's a spiritual war going on and people are getting chewed up and spit out and destroyed and hurt and damaged all the time because we don't pray for one another spiritually. Number five, guard your thought life. Watch what you put in your mind. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, man, that's all a mouthful, isn't it? Dwell on, think on, focus on, pay attention to these things. The music you listen to, the movies you watch, what you put in your mind matters because what you put in ultimately shapes you not only on the inside but ultimately on the outside. You you want to be Christ-like, you want to be godly, you want to be righteous, then fill yourself with that kind of stuff. Whatever you feed grows. If you feed the sinful flesh, it will grow. If you feed the new nature, it will grow. And then here's the last one. Develop self-awareness and sincerity. It's amazing how many people don't pay much attention to what's really going on in the inside of themselves, their own, their own issues. They don't, they don't ever, they, they're not very self-aware. Have blind spots. Matthew 23, 25, and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, the dish, but inside they're full of robbery robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. You ever, you ever gotten a cup or a glass and filled it with something to drink and all of a sudden you look down and realize it wasn't clean? <laughs> that's, a, that's just bad, isn't it? See, he's saying the Pharisees, these... The, these these people, they, they wash the outside of it. They keep the outside of it so clean, but the inside is dirty. The inside's full of all these sins, all this corruption. And he says, in your life, in your life, your life, if you're not careful, you can be somebody that plays the part on the outside. But on the inside, <laughs> it's a different story. You're a dirty cup. Now, the, the sincere person, the genuine person, the self-aware person becomes aware of that. I mean, growth is a life 
long experience. Listen, if you're 17 or 77 or any other age, you should always become more self-aware of who you are and let God keep cleaning you up and making you better. Because the, the rest of us, may, we may just see the outside of that nice, clean, shiny cup. But I got news for you. God sees the inside. And what he says here is, and, and the last verse is clean up the inside so the outside will be clean. Because as a believer, listen, as a human being, what's on the inside eventually works its way to the outside. When it comes to humanity, you can't keep what's in here, in here all your life. Sooner or later, it's going show up. So it's all about desiring, wanting, being intentional, knowing that we're sinners, but understanding that as people who say we love Jesus Christ, when we mess up, people are hurt, not just relationally, but spiritually. And it matters. And so there are times we need to genuinely repent We need to, just like an athlete training, training for a game, we need to be dedicated to being in the presence of God, dedicated to reading Scripture, dedicated to a prayer life, dedicated to hearing the voice of God as He speaks to us about those things on the inside, dedicated to hanging out with God's people, Dedicated to growing and becoming more Christ-like. And just helping one another get there. Just putting your arm, not, not in a judgmental way at all, don't do that, but just put your arm around somebody and bring them with you. So we're going to sing this, this hymn of invitation and uh, ask you to respond to what God's been saying to you about the church, about the world, but in particular about your own walk with Jesus, your own, your own life.